0: Siddy episode 10, so you'll want to be an astronomer. Welcome back to another episode of Syzygy. In fact, not just any episode of Syzygy. They said we'd never make it. This is episode 10. Q fireworks and, and explosions and those little party popper things. Balloons. I, I knew I should have brought party cake. poppers. That would have been great. Brought cake, or at least brownie. Does that yeah. count?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very good brownie.
0: Fantastic. Right. It is episode 10. Ooh. You know, a couple of months ago, we started this little project and we did episode one, and that was exciting. And we, now we've made it to episode 10, and this is exciting. And I'm wondering, Emily, Emily Brunston, joining me on the microphone, as ever, from the University of York. I'm wondering, Emily, whether, is this a power of 10 thing? Like, yeah, do we get yeah. to Do we get to celebrate, like, every 10, or do we have to wait for 100, and then 1,000, and then 10,000 episodes of Syzygy before we get to have another brownie?
1: Well, as much as I do really love logarithmic scales, I think going for the hundreds of millions of episodes might be slightly ambitious, even for us.
0: So yes, episode 10. That's very exciting. We thought on this particular episode that we would talk a little bit, we'd, we'd go a bit meta because we've been talking about lots of astronomical things. But in this one, we wanted to talk about astronomers and what it's like to be an astronomer and We're how, real people. You, how you get to become astronomers. You know, astronomers aren't. Well, there's this, this is sort of mental image that I think your average pundit on the street might have of an astronomer, which is someone out on a cold, dark night, peering through the eyepiece of a telescope. And that may once have been true. But we're going back a very long time when peering through the eyepiece of a telescope was what defined astronomy. Nowadays, it's completely different. And in fact, it's anything but that. So we thought we'd spend a little bit of time today talking about, well ourselves, because that's always fun. And in particular, <laughs> Emily, your, your journey into astronomy and, and my journey into science, though I'm not an astronomy, I, I, I have been a scientist and I hang out with, with scientists, so that's fun. But we also thought we'd talk a bit about how you get into astronomy and what are the different avenues for getting involved with and enjoying this wide field of study of the universe. So yeah. why don't we start with, Emily, you. <laughs> how did how did you get here? Right? We're sitting in your office here at the University of York. You are an astronomer. I right? am, yes. So you're an actual bona fide. It's on your card and everything. <laughs> so what's your story? How'd you get here?
1: Well, um, I was not – so you get really lovely stories from astronomers of things that inspired them from incredibly young ages, and some of them are just beautiful. My story starts a little bit later, actually, probably in my teens, and I call myself a little bit of child of the Hubble Space Telescope. Right, Okay. So if we cast our minds back to the mid-90s, then uh, Hubble was releasing its first sort of images. They were these glorious pictures of gas clouds with star clusters. The colours were amazing. They were just some of the most beautiful pieces of artwork I've ever seen. And
0: and Hubble was was quite an amazing jump in, in astronomy, wasn't it? Because it was, was it the first major space telescope
1: Yes, definitely. And yeah. so it,
0: it's, you know, the, the reason for putting a telescope in space is because you don't have the atmosphere to peer through. And the atmosphere gets in the way of, of um, telescopes. You know, it, it, um, it blurs things out. It makes things wobble around. You have to do a lot of work to, to get rid of that. Or, thought the astronomers, we could just put a big telescope in space. And yeah. so that's what they did. And Hubble was the first big one of those. Um, and the results were extraordinary.
1: Ex- yeah, totally out of this world, if you like. Um, and Hubble changed the way people thought about astronomy as well because it made, Hubble was accessible to everybody and still is actually accessible to even school groups, individuals who want to use Hubble for their, you know, just interest and look at interesting things.
0: Well, one, of the, one of the really interesting things that I think about, about Hubble, I mean, you're right, you know, these images are, they're iconic now. Some of the most well-known images of space now are uh, Hubble Space Telescope images. But astronomy and and you know the Hubble Space Telescope is not typically used for research purposes for just taking pretty pickies of the sky. That's not how <laughs> astronomy works. But it does have that double side of it that, look, we can look really closely at this bit of sky and perform research by doing really, really uh, precise measurements in all sorts of different ways. But we can also just open the camera and have a look and get these incredible images that are, as you say, so accessible yeah, to the planet. and
1: just beautiful. And I remember looking at those images. Uh, there's one in particular called the Pillars of Creation. Mm. And I was looking at that, and I can remember thinking – those colours are amazing. Why is there a red bit of colour over there? Why is there a blue colour over there? Actually, what is that black stuff over there? Why are there stars here? So I wanted to know more about why. Why do we have these beautiful things in the universe?
0: Which is, I mean, that's a fairly common, I think, response from people who get into science and get into astronomy is that, that triggering of that question, which is, That's amazing. Why, and that came for you from Hubble Space Telescope pictures? Yes,
1: definitely. Cool.
0: So, how old were you?
1: Um, I was in my mid-teens, so I was at that sort of point of deciding what subjects I needed to study. Um, I was pretty good at most of my subjects. I wasn't uh, amazing at any, and I wasn't terrible at any. So, I kind of had a um, just some difficult choices to make um, when I was in secondary school. Um, I knew I liked science. I thought I liked biology. But um, in fact, the uh, day before my uh, fifth form started, which was um, the GCSE equivalent for the UK, um, I actually changed out of biology and I changed my, into physics because I thought, well, if I'm going to learn more about this astrophysics business, well, the clue is in the title a little bit there. If it's yes. astrophysics, I might need some physics here. Yeah,
0: you might need to go and pay attention to that for a bit. Cool. So where did you, where did you end up at university?
1: So, um, well, I was, I'm from New Zealand, so I was obviously in New Zealand at the time, and uh, in New Zealand there's pretty much only one university that does um, an astronomy degree. Um, there's, there's sort of a bit more uh, now options, but um, pretty much University of Canterbury was the place to go. They have an observatory. They have a program in astronomy. So for me, that decision wasn't so difficult. It was a pretty easy one. It's either, yeah. it's
0: either there or overseas. Yeah. And if you're going to go overseas from New Zealand, it's pretty much the rest of the world.
1: Yeah. And yeah. I'd been overseas actually in between uh, my secondary school and uh, going to university. So I kind of wanted to go back and start my studies uh, back at home, if you like. So, yeah, I did that. I did an undergraduate degree in um, astronomy and physics. I did a BSc, Bachelor of Science, um, then moved into um, an honours year on the end of it where you do a kind of a project. And then after that, I sort of thought, well, I needed a bit of a break. So I went and did a teaching uh, diploma or degree, became a secondary, qualified secondary teacher. And at about this time, I actually heard that my uh, supervisor for my undergraduate project had got a lot of funding, and I thought, well, maybe maybe this is a good time to uh, continue my own studies. And uh, so I wrote her an email and said, look, I've heard you got some funding. Do you fancy having a PhD student? She wrote back and said, yep. And so that was... Easiest it. job offer you've ever had. It was pretty easy. I have to admit, I've been very, very fortunate. <laughs> But that being said, I mean, the uh, PhD positions are often advertised, um, you know, very, very widely, so that lots of people have an opportunity to access them.
0: Was it a was it a difficult choice between between the the school teaching? I mean, you're obviously lecturing here at the at the university now, so you are still teaching very much. So, um, but was it a difficult choice between I want to go and continue doing some research. I'm not done with that, but I've also been training to become a school teacher.
1: It's actually, they're very complementary in um, in a traditional academic setting. So uh, say my day-to-day job here at the university is I lecture to students anywhere from their first year up into their final year projects. Um, and so the teaching component of my job is very, very strong. In fact, I'm a teaching-focused academic. So I knew that doing some secondary teaching would never be useless if I wanted to carry on in academia um and it has been very very useful actually um going forward so uh, no no it wasn't um a difficult decision i knew that it was maybe converging to get me in the same place
0: so you got the PhD, you wrote a letter and said, can I have one? And they said, yes. <laughs> uh, and then you did the work.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So what, three years?
1: Uh, yeah. Three years. Just over three grafted. and a half years. Yeah. Um, it was pretty hard. It was an amazing time. Um, some of my favorite times um, as a student was as a PhD student. It's it's very, it's, it's, I can't downplay how difficult it is. It, it's an, a huge uh, challenge, but it's also very rewarding. And there's great communities um, in departments with well, PhD it's the, students. It's
0: the first time that you're really in charge of your, your own research destiny. Yes, you know, you get a little yeah. flavour of that in your final year of your undergrad, what, what, you know, in some parts of the world we call the honours year. Um, but it's not really, you know, that's maybe, maybe sort of six months worth of work in a highly guided environment. Whereas the PhD tends to be a lot more, well, it, there's this project, it might work. Go and hmm. see what you can make of it. And that's up to you. And it's, it's three years worth of learning, you know, it's an apprenticeship, learning how to do the thing that is ultimately perhaps going to become your career.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it's there's a wonderful shift over the course of a PhD, which I noticed when I did mine and I see now in my students as well is that you start off very guided. So your supervisor is saying, well, why don't you think about this? Or have you tried doing this? And, you know, you, they're giving you kind of these directions. And then there's a transition where you end up in your meeting saying, well, I looked at this, this, and this, and I found this. And they just, you know, they mm. step back and it's suddenly become your thing. It's your research. It's your project.
0: Well, and you're the expert. Yeah. You know, at some point, you for, even if it's just in an incredibly tight, narrow bit of the field, you know more than anyone else in the room. And it might be tiny, but that's you. That's your little slice.
1: Yeah, your one little pixel of yeah. knowledge more than anyone yeah. else. It and they're looking at you
0: a little bit like, okay... Hope you're right. <laughs> so, yeah. So do I. <laughs> I really hope I'm right too.
1: Yeah. So of course I, I, I didn't want to give up teaching. I loved it. I continued to teach in a secondary school and um, I also worked um, as a lecturer in the university whilst I was doing my PhD. So you
0: were teaching while you were doing your PhD? Yes. Nice work. Yeah. Well done.
1: Yeah. I was I was very lucky to be given all these opportunities, I have to say.
0: I was flat out getting out of bed. <laughs>
1: um and well also as a phd student you're kind of a bit broke so. well, there is that as well. <laughs> you're trying to fund your your habits um and so i continued doing that and i did a lot of outreach as well so i really enjoy engaging with um, the public talking about astronomy because it's really it fires me up and gets me so excited so i did all that and then at the end of my phd i thought Oh, okay. What do we do now? What are we going to do now? Um, The very traditional route, if you like, into academia is to go on and do what they call postdocs or postdoctoral researchers, research fellowships, this kind of a a variation in language. Which
0: is a sort of a a relatively short term, say maybe two years, three years contract to do research with an established research group. They get some funding and they put up some of that funding for uh, an early career researcher, someone who's probably not far out of a PhD, to come in and do some research. And we'll pay you. You know, it's not huge amounts of money, but it's certainly better than nothing. Um, but they are, yeah temporary, yeah, temporary contracts.
1: It's a bit of a strange system, to be fair, their postdoctoral system. And a typical person may do two, three, four, maybe more postdocs, which range from one year to three years, and very commonly in astronomy, this means bouncing around the world to do that because you, you're quite a specialist and there's not many research groups in one location that yeah. will you know, be in the same field that you work in.
0: The chances of it coming up where you are, when you're there, pretty low.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you have kind of this huge movement of people, which is very beneficial to the science in general, but it might not always be so beneficial for the, the poor postdocs who have to move around a lot. Yeah,
0: the flip side to that, of course, is that it can be if you're open to it and if things go well for you. And there's, you know, there's a few ifs in there, there's a few caveats in there, but it can be quite an adventure because you've got the opportunity to go and try out a bunch of different things in a bunch of different places with a bunch of different people. Across a, an amazing network of researchers. So, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Pros and cons.
1: Exactly. Yeah, if you if you want to be an academic, it's very useful if you like travelling.
0: <laughs> so you did a postdoc.
1: I did not do any. You post-docs. didn't do any
0: postdoc. So oh, yeah. I'm
1: very weird and unusual. So you
0: skipped that whole fun <laughs> I part. I did
1: though. skip that fun part. So um, what I did was I started. I applied for some postdocs, um, and but at the same time I was applying for a job here at the University of York. And it was a job that was a teaching focused academic, and I had a reasonably strong teaching background by that point. And I thought it was a very cheeky application actually to go for a a real job at that point, but. Um, someone must have thought it was a good idea, so and I got a job. I mean, after <laughs> your experience with
0: applying for the PhD, and I say applying in inverted commas, hey, can you give me a PhD? Hey, can you give me a job? Like, this seems to be your modus operandi here.
1: Well, to be fair, I did apply through the typical system route <laughs> yeah, for, for this current job. But a certain but, yeah. element of cheekiness. Well, Jillian. yeah, and, and I think, I think you know, that's that's a general thing. I mean, you it's, it's a small field, it's a small um, subject, really, in the global scale of things. And it's difficult. It's a difficult career path to get to where you need to be. And if you are more open-minded and are willing to look at different opportunities, then I think it's much easier to to move forward.
0: And put yourself out there. And Why not? It can't hurt to try. You have to be brave. You
1: You do have to be brave.
0: Yes. So here you are. And here I am. In that position. You've been here for four four years years
1: now. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love it. It's brilliant. I've I think this is the perfect job for me. I'm teaching students. I love teaching, I'm working with students all the way through their degrees, and I'm doing research as well. So, it's, and it's great. you're in
0: charge of something which is which is pretty cool here at the university, which is the astro campus. Yeah, which was kind yes. of set up around about the time that you came, that your job was tied to, now there's this Astro Campus thing. You've got to make that work. So out you come. So just tell us a little bit. Go on. Bit of yeah. a plug. Oh, Astro right. Campus, yeah. Astro what Astro is campus.
1: it? Astro um, Campus. So Astro Campus, I was also very lucky. I stepped in just as it was kind of opening. In fact, it opened about three months after I arrived in New York. But I was given the directorship of the site. It's our observatory. It's on the site of the university campus here in New York, And it's a very interesting and, and I feel, unique facility. We have the normal sort of range of telescopes that you might find in a university that teaches astronomy. So we have optical telescopes, radio telescopes, solar telescopes, etc. But what we've done is we've put them all out onto the site that's not very far away from the university, so it's accessible to students. In fact, they do their lab work there during the daytime and in the nighttime. Uh, And we've sort of gone for the very top end of um, either amateur equipment or the very, very lowest end of research equipment. So none of the equipment is used for science research. It is for the students and they can use it as much as they like. And if it breaks, you know, that's just part of their learning (laughs)
0: It's nice to yes, yeah, nice to have something you can throw at the students and just say, Look, please don't break it. But you're not going to upset an entire research group if something does go a little bit wrong.
1: Exactly. And they get that hands-on experience. Um, it's you know, it's not the best site in the world, but that doesn't matter. It's convenient and they're getting the, the you know, to use real equipment in a really meaningful way.
0: Which is cool. So that, that's brought together your your research, your teaching interests, your outreach interests, because it's used for that as well, in, yeah. a, in a university where, you know, there isn't a big astronomy group here, is there?
1: No, no. And I think that's what's interesting about um, research and say now in modern times is that it almost doesn't need to be because we communicate. My colleagues, I still work with colleagues in New Zealand. I work with colleagues in Europe. We don't actually have to be in the same room very, you know, very often to um, be able to progress what we're trying to do.
0: And if what what I can see of astronomers that I that I know around the world anyway, they do tend to do a fair amount of travel or working with people on completely different parts of the planet at all times of the day and night, it's, it seems like that's the norm.
1: Yeah, yeah. And when we do get together for conferences and things, they're they're intense, but they're amazing because mm. we're now just putting everyone's heads together and saying, right, what are we going to do now?
0: So it's not like you're isolated.
1: No, no, not at all. Um, and so it's, it's a really exciting thing to do. And I'm absolutely thrilled. I love every day of my job.
0: Well, okay. So... That's Emily, and she's got a great job. Fantastic. If you too were interested out there in listener land in getting involved in astronomy, well, that's one way of getting into it, if you can go back and start a degree and do a PhD and end up in a, in a position in astronomy but it's not the only way.
1: By no means, by no means. I think actually we need to think more broadly about education and how people want to be you know, thinking about what they're doing throughout their whole lives. So the very traditional route into astronomy is kind of very similar to what I just described, uh, where you study physics and maths at school and you move into astrophysics uh, at university. But... You know, you don't have to go from school directly into university. We have, there are lots of access routes, if you like, into higher education that are not, oh, I just finished my A-levels or equivalents um, and I'm just going to go straight to university. Yeah, you don't yeah. have
0: to be 18 years old and, and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. There mm-hmm. are other opportunities and they're not always the most visible You might actually have to go and ask.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, So lots of institutions offer access programs, which means if you have done different things in your life before deciding you want to do a degree, then they provide pathways for you to be able to get to the same level that everyone else is going to be in the room when you enter your first year of study. So, for example, at the University of York, we offer a foundation year program that provides the physics and maths that you need to carry on into either astrophysics or our general physics programs. Yeah, and
0: most universities will have something similar.
1: Yeah, there's lots of them, and some of them are online as well, so you can um, actually do them at your own pace and your own time as well. So there's lots of opportunities.
0: It's also worth pointing out that, you know, if you if you think about traditional astronomy, and, you know, as I said back at the beginning, it's it's not looking through the eyepiece of a telescope anymore. Research in astronomy and astrophysics and cosmology and so on brings in so many different fields that... It's almost impossible to to list them all. You know, I think
1: almost anything is actually useful. Yeah, yeah. It
0: just it's just a different context for the sort of thing you might be doing. So, you know, some of the largest research organisations or research collaborations on the planet are around some of you know the enormous new telescopes that are that are uh, coming online or already online or going to be coming online in the next five years or so. Some of these are huge projects across many, many countries' where the collaborations. And yes, they need people who have done higher degrees and have established research careers in astrophysics. Absolutely. But they also need people who are really, really good with IT, who can work with enormous amounts of data that are being pulled in or are going to be pulled in off these, off these telescopes. They, it needs people who Not necessarily even working with data, who can actually figure out how to put together the next generation of computing equipment that we don't yet know what it's going to look like in order to be able to deal with this stuff. We need project managers. We need people who can actually get out there and fix stuff with Mm -hmm. tools, and little electronic meters that says, oh, this is why telescope number 612 isn't working, you know? It's an incredibly diverse field.
1: We need science communicators who are going to help us explain to everybody else why we're spending their money, their tax money, on these really hugely important projects.
0: So I guess the point is that you can get involved in modern astronomy from all sorts of different angles. You don't have to go to university and study astronomy. You can be really good in a bunch of different fields and keep your eyes open for job advertisements or or um, you know when they put out to tender and contract and so on for all sorts of interesting projects that are all over the world there's all sorts of stuff going on and there are ways yeah. to get into it
1: yeah and I often get asked from people so what use is a physics or an astronomy degree um, going to be at the end of it so yes you can be an astronomer but that sounds like a very limited set of jobs and it's true there's not a huge number of people like me of jobs. Yeah. but um, that being said there are heaps of other types of people who will call themselves astronomers so you have full-time researchers who work in um, institutes or telescopes. In fact, you have support astronomers, and these support astronomers do all sorts of really interesting stuff. So you might have people whose professional job is to work on a telescope. One particular telescope, they will know that telescope incredibly well, and they will help everybody else who needs to use it to get the data that they need from them. That. That's a really cool job.
0: Yeah. I mean, as an, as an astronomer, as a research astronomer, I'm assuming that you don't typically become intimately knowledgeable about the workings of the telescope that you're on. You might spend some time with that telescope. You might spend time on other telescopes as well. What you're looking for are the tools to be able to answer the questions that you're asking. Someone else needs to have that incredibly precise, detailed knowledge about that instrument to be able to sit down with you and say, yeah, okay, here's what we're going to need to do in order to make that happen.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's a job. Yeah, yeah. the biggest telescopes in the world will have lots of people who know that telescope, who know what happens when you point it this way and who understand how to get the data that the astronomers are saying, well, I just want this end product. They will know how to get that for you. And there's, of course, all the the suite of engineers and so on who support all those activities as well. Uh, You also have data scientist astronomers. So these are people who maybe don't physically go and work on a hands-on telescope but are looking at data, big data, Right. We're getting more and more data than we can even possibly handle in some cases.
0: Well, I mean, we've done a couple of stories about this on the podcast already, where data that that we found in the past, maybe even going back a couple of decades, has suddenly become, oh, we should go back and look at that, because there might be, you know, there might be ice plumes on a distant planet in the solar system that we can find out about. And that's just stuff that we've already got sitting on a shelf. The telescopes that are being built now are going to be bringing in More data than you can even imagine, let alone have a hope of getting through in real time. So these are huge problems. We need Mm. people who are just utterly invested in, you know what, I don't actually really care so much about the astrophysics i'm really interested in the data side of things let me at that
1: yeah yeah and this is kind of almost like a brand new job that sprung up mm. in the last couple of decades this data scientist who is a specialist in getting what you want out of a usually very very large data set very exciting lots of programming lots of really nice computer science in there um then you have we sort of mentioned project management those kind of skills uh, we've got a p- policy so people who are um, interested in science policy are really important to help us you know work with various governments and get well particularly when fundings. these things
0: are you know multi-million possibly we're getting up to billions definitely for some of these billions, really big yeah. like the square kilometer array and things like that these are enormous multi-country multi-hundred million or, or multi-billion dollar projects um, involving huge numbers of people. Yeah, damn right you need project managers and yeah, you need policy yeah. people and you need finance people. And it's all in in the process of getting some awesome astronomy done.
1: Yeah. And we need scientists who are in politics as well to help have that voice in our um, governments and systems. So, yeah, they're really important roles in there. And I mean, let's, let's talk about you for a minute then, okay. Chris, because we, we do definitely need people who are keen on science communication and outreach.
0: Well, and, and that, is a, that is a big one in, in astronomy and astrophysics and cosmology for a couple of reasons, right? One is because it's just so much fun. I mean, I think it's, it's got to be the oldest of the, the, the areas of science communication just because it's so awesome. In, yeah. the, in the literal sense of the word, it is awesome. It It is awe-inspiring stuff. You cannot see some of these pictures. I defy you to see some of these Hubble pictures and, and not have a, a strange feeling in your heart about our position in the world, in the universe. But also because it's a really good way of talking to people about science and science's place in the world you know if you can if you can get them in some people talk about astronomy being a gateway drug you know that you can you can hook people on these amazing images and concepts but then use it as a way to talk to people about the scientific process the scientific method and the place and role of, of science in society, and use mm. it as a way in to talk about all sorts of other things that aren't astronomy related, yeah. but that are, that are really important.
1: And lots of scientists start off in astronomy and then find their their passion in whatever field that they end up being in, which is amazing. It's really cool.
0: Yeah, and one of the great messages about about astronomy, and when you're talking to the to the public, when you're talking to School children, particularly, you know, part of the aim of, of science outreach and science communication is, you know, to inform people broadly and, and to engage them in a, in a discussion about how science is done and, and why science is done and whether science should be done. You know, is it right that we're spending multi-billion dollars looking at the skies? Um, but to also get across to them uh, what we were just talking about, which is the whole range of different things that you can do in in these subjects, that if you find this stuff interesting, but you're not sure that a PhD and several postdocs around the world as an astronomer is for you, that's okay. If your thing is computers, believe me, there is room for you in modern astronomy. If your thing is tinkering with machines, trust me, there (laughs) is a place for you. doesn't mean that someone's going to come and just throw a job at you. But if you're keen, if you're interested then there are all sorts of different ways that you can get involved. And not only that, people are needed. You know, there's a demand for people. So we've got to get out there and talk it up. Otherwise, we're going to find that we have this incredible shortage of skills that are absolutely desperately needed around the planet for these amazing scientific collaborations. And And it's not just in astronomy. You know, if you find that you get sucked into a particular field because of the, you know, you you love the images and you love the concepts, you love the ideas, and you end up getting some really good technical expertise, believe me, there are huge, huge research needs across all, like medical and quantum is huge, and, you know, cl- climate change, trying to solve climate change from a whole bunch of different issues, d- different areas and points of view, your skills are needed. What we've got to do is turn people onto it.
1: Definitely. And actually, it, it's broader than that. And it's not just about doing astronomy or even science for a job. That You can do a science as a hobby as well. And that's what makes it so fun as well. You can do it at part time.
0: And astronomy is one of those ones where, you know, it's very difficult to do modern quantum physics as a hobby, right? That's, that's really hard. It was always pretty hard, but at least, you know, 100 years ago, you had a fighting chance of doing an experiment, with, you know, light going through very narrow slits and stuff like that, that you could show (laughs) quantum effects and go, hmm. But there's no way that you could sit down now and put together an experiment at home or in your back shed as a hobbyist that would have any impact on modern quantum information theory, for example. Hmm. But astronomy, amateur astronomy, is still a really, really, really big thing. And part of that is because... There's so much to look at, and part of it is because there's so much data that needs to be explored.
1: Exactly, yeah. So we have huge numbers of amateur astronomers who contribute to real science just by using their own hobby telescopes to look at really interesting objects. So what sort of stuff? So, But uh, variable stars are a really big part of amateur astronomy and always have been. They're sort of one of the classic fields in astronomy. Um, There's a brilliant organization called the AAVSO, which stands for the American Association of Variable Star Observers. Now, it's not just for Americans. It's it's an inclusive um, group for anyone. But they do fabulous work at monitoring basically if a star or anything that's in the sky is going to change over time. Then they're looking at it, and it's great. And there's data that goes back uh, tens of years uh, in these systems and their databases that I still use for projects for my students today.
0: And you, every once in a while, you hear about an amateur astronomers who, you know, turn up a, a new comet, mm-hmm. things of that nature. You it's know, new you've supernovae. New supernova. That's a, yeah. that's a huge one. You know, having this this network of people around the world who are gazing at the skies, even though there are Big telescopes that are capable of of outclassing anything that an amateur astronomer has got in their backyard or in their back shed or on the back of their truck, they are only able to point at certain parts of the sky at periods of time. If you have a a blanket network across the world of people who are just doing it because they love it, you're going to find stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly, and it's and there's a lot. It's a brilliant community. I really, really enjoy the amateur astronomy community, and boy, do they know their stuff about <laughs> telescopes. My goodness, do. yeah.
0: You'd get in some great conversations there. The other one is citizen science, which I think is a really interesting area of modern of modern science. And this is where you know you don't even need a telescope. In fact, most people taking part in citizen science projects don't have any background in in other amateur astronomy. But these are things like Galaxy Zoo and and so on, where these surveys of the night sky, trying to find out information and get data and, for example, classify types of galaxies. And you've got huge amounts of data on millions upon millions of objects that need looking at, that literally need looking at.
1: There are some jobs computers just can't do.
0: Or they need to learn to do you know a, a computer developing the artificial intelligence to be able to distinguish one type of galaxy from another needs to learn from us which means that we need to do that work first we need to be able to say this is a barred spiral galaxy and this is not and someone's got to do that on the on the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of images that are coming out of telescopes so there are citizen science projects that you could get involved with now to yeah. go out and start doing actual research doesn't mean you're going to be an author on the paper sorry but you are actually playing an important role in your choosing of these various different things through the program that you can download onto your pc at home
1: yeah and there's lots of these citizen science projects across lots of different disciplines now in science as well they've been enormously successful and i love that the public are you know people are engaged in this this process and wanting wanting to help
0: yeah i mean you can do it with everything from You know, identifying different types of galaxies through to what were the birds in your backyard this morning? Or have you got a hedgehog, you know, under the woodpile in the backyard? And it's all really important science. It sounds trivial at that level, but when you put all the data together from all of the people around the world, then that's real.
1: But then let's dial it back a little bit and say you don't even really want to do science. If you just want to learn a little bit more about this fabulous night sky. I mean, it's the one universal thing that we have as humanity is anyone can walk out at night, see the night sky and probably see at least a few stars in it. Right. And uh, there's something very engaging about that. I think. I think almost everyone has a personal relationship with the night sky because everyone has, um, has been able to go out there and explore it. So we I mean, maybe we should talk about where you might start. Yeah. Just from the very, very beginning. Yeah, I
0: think that's a really good point because it it does bring us back to, to where we started, which is the enjoyment and the aesthetic nature of looking up at the sky and and pondering our place within it. Yeah. And that's accessible to everyone with modest amounts of effort and knowledge. So yeah. where do you start?
1: Well, a zero cost way is to just get out there at night and look up and you can use uh, lots of free resources to get either a um, sky chart and you can take that out and p- print it out and take it out with you or you can get apps on your phone these days. Yeah, amazing will... apps
0: that you can point up at the sky and it will show you using the in- built-in compass and accelerometer in, in the phone or in the in the tablet to be looking in the same direction that you are to be able to say that that one there that's jupiter that one there that's such and such a star yeah and that's so
1: cool and being familiar with the basic constellations is actually really rewarding process and then you can start looking into the constellations actually what are the stories why is um, orion a hunter and what is he hunting actually in the night sky for example those are some really nice things to share as well you can progress a little bit, you know, there's a scale. You normally start just by looking with your naked eye and then you can kind of choose to progress. Um, my favourite thing to do is actually to get a pair of binoculars out. So not, you know, spending huge amounts of money, but still able to see with binoculars a huge amount more than you can just with the naked eye.
0: Yeah, and, and most people would have access to... If not in their own home, someone, someone you know has a pair of binoculars. Yeah, and getting outside, as you say, just looking carefully at the moon because even with binoculars, a full moon can be pretty bright. Yeah. Um, but just seeing the amount of detail that you can see. Yeah,
1: and there's lots of resources online where you can find what to actually look at. Mm. Lots of star clusters and things that are you can see with binoculars that are really just cool. And, at, and at this
0: point, it's worth also saying if you haven't, if you are one of the increasing number of people in the world today who hasn't ever gotten away from the bright city lights and the glow of the nearby urban areas into out into proper dark countryside, then do it. You know, at some point, get away. Get up onto the hills, away from the cities because you will be absolutely gobsmacked at what the night sky actually looks like. It's worth doing once in your life. Get out there, take your significant other, take your kids if you've got any... And just do it because it's amazing.
1: It's just gorgeous. Yeah. So as you say before, awesome. It does really inspire you with awe. Um, yeah. And so then I would say if you're still keen, if you if you think, oh, actually, I might like this kind of business. I yeah, might like my, own, my own telescope or something like that. My suggestion would actually be find some friends. So most um, regions, most um, Counties or villages or towns or cities will have something like an astronomical society. There's probably one near to you. They're, they're quite common. Um, As we
0: said, there's a lot of amateurs out there. And there they're are really keen.
1: And the the people in those these um, astronomical societies are so passionate and knowledgeable. They are brilliant people to start talking to. And they, they don't care if you know absolutely nothing about anything. They're... In fact,
0: if anything, that's probably better yeah. because that's an opportunity for them to tell you some stuff.
1: Exactly. And as I say, they they are the experts generally in, when it comes to small telescopes. I still consult astronomical societies when I'm looking at small telescopes because they know much, much more than I do.
0: And Emily, I need to ask you, do you remember the first time that you saw a planet other than the Earth? through a telescope in any kind of detail i definitely and what do. it was like
1: it was my jaw dropped to the floor so which planet was it It was jupiter right yeah just amazing to see the stripes on jupiter i'd never thought i don't know i'd never put the two together that jupiter was this bright thing in the sky you could see from time to time and that you look at through a telescope you can see detail on a planet that's not ours yeah
0: and it, it it probably wasn't because I had a very similar similar response. The telescope that I looked through was maybe two feet long. Like yeah. this wasn't a big telescope. It had a, it had a fairly good barrel on it, you know. It was several inches wide. It wasn't one of these tiny little ones that you peer on your neighbours with. But it wasn't massive and it probably cost maybe hundreds of pounds, mm. not thousands. Mm. And I remember looking at Jupiter and it was barely enough to be able to see maybe a bit of detail on the surface but the thing that blew me away was jupiter and then three or four of its moons strung yeah. out in a line and that really hit it home to me there was that one and then there was also seeing saturn and saturn seeing the rings of saturn and you can i don't care how many photographs high resolution hubble pictures that you've seen of saturn seeing it for yourself through actual optics in the night sky blows you away there is no other thing i can think of that is comparable to that feeling of good god that's another planet
1: yeah it's it's hard to describe until you've done it yourself yeah. uh, that you've that, that very small act creating such a big impact yeah. on you so
0: number one is get out into into the dark the proper dark and have a look at the night sky and number two is find someone who can show you the detail in the night sky. And yep. Go and find some of this stuff for yourself.
1: Astronomical societies, professional observatories, planetaria. Um, we've got even universities like we've got the Astro Campus we open. There are lots of uh, public facilities that are available uh, these days to, to go and explore. So I think basically if we, our message to everybody is that astronomy is for everybody. Um, we want to be very inclusive. We want lots of different people to come and join us in our exploration of the skies. And my favourite thing that I'm going to say to end this on on is that really astronomy is looking up. Nice.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of episode 10 of Syzygy. They said it wouldn't last. And here we are, episode 10. 10 episodes in. How does it feel, Emily?
1: I'm really excited. It's lovely. It? It's lovely, it's lovely like... to know people
0: are listening. Yeah, yeah. It kind of feels like we're hitting our stride. And we do know people are listening because we've had some reviews on, uh, on Apple Podcasts. A couple of lovely people have gone and left some reviews and. You know, counted out five stars to give us, and that's really, really nice. And as I say each week, it is really nice—not just for our own egos, although you know that's important—but also because it helps other people to find us. And if there was one message out of this show that we wanted you to take away, it was that this stuff is for everyone, and we want to spread the message as far as we can. That astronomy is awesome, and you really should get involved. So, thank you, thank you very much, everyone. Yeah, yeah, huge thanks, huge thanks. And if you want to help us out, then go to your podcast directory of choice, whether that's iTunes, Apple, whether it's on Stitcher Radio, whatever it might be. Find the way to leave us a little review and tell us what you think. You can also get in touch with us in other ways as well if you want to send us a question or a comment. How else can they get in touch, Emily?
1: Yeah, I absolutely love questions. So you can contact us through Twitter. So we're at SyzygyPod. That's S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. Pod. Pod. (laughs) And, uh, of course, through our website, syzygy.fm. We have a lovely little form you can fill out, which will send us a wee email, and we can look at your next question in the next episode. That's
0: right. We've had a couple of listener questions in the first 10 episodes. I think it would be really awesome if we get to the point where we have a listener question every episode I think that would be a great that'd way be to brilliant. every time but you know we'll work our way up to that one in the meantime thank you all very much for listening we produce this podcast every week here in the lovely plush offices of Emily here at the University of York, and we're really thankful to them for, for giving us the space to do this both mentally and physically. Um, my name is Chris Stewart. I've been talking to Emily Brunston for the last 10 episodes, and we're going to be back again for episode number 11 next week, where we're going to be talking about black holes.
1: Black holes. But in the meantime, just get out there and look up.
0: Yes, do. Both of us? Are you there? Ooh. Yes, you're there.
1: Fantastic. Yeah. Cool. You All do right. realise that basically this whole process to me is just magic.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it mostly is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it mostly is entirely magic. All right, let's do this.